Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Dave, you know, when we talk about this whole Ukrainian uh, and Russian issue, we've done a lot of work to talking to military officials, uh, intelligence agencies who can give us information, um, and experts from around the world. It's been a part of our due diligence for our clients. Mm-hmm. Um, we have come up with the solution or scenarios that, that could happen in this conflict. And in that, in that uh, solution and scenarios, We've kind of narrowed it down to four different outcomes. Now, Dave, I want you to take a couple of minutes of time so people can understand what's happening, um, why we're saying, not going to lie, here are scenarios, but there could be impacts to markets, to economy, to people's lives when it comes to these four different outcomes. Mm -hmm. Walk us through, from the research that we have, what are those possible outcomes? Yeah. I was really, uh, I felt very fortunate uh, this week. We've done lots of uh, research, as you said, on the, on the various conflicts throughout history back to World War II. Yeah. Um, and we've sent some material out on that. Um, very fortunate to spend some time on a, on a presentation this week, um, a private presentation with the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, uh, talking about, from a military perspective, what are the likely outcomes? We get asked that question a lot. We're not military guys. Yeah. So here's the guy that, <clears throat> that ran the entire operation in NATO, and, and he came up with four things, uh, four potential outcomes for this conflict, and, um, and then we're going to talk economically about what, sort of what that will mean. So let's give credit <clears throat> to the individual first. Let's yeah, mention so his Jim, name yeah, and so Jim forth. Stravitis, so yeah, Admiral Jim Stravitis. Uh, so he says that the, the first potential outcome is that Russia wins this war and takes Ukraine. Okay? We're talking the whole country. Um, instills a, uh, a basically a puppet regime in Ukraine, uh, as he, you know, Putin has done in some other uh, countries, and, and that's, you know, that's the conflict. Um, he did not feel that, even if that were the scenario, that militarily Russia would cross a NATO border. He felt that the, uh, and he went through some statistics about I'll uh, just give you one. The size of military spending in NATO is $900 billion a year versus $60 billion a year in Russia. And took, look at manpower, look at um, strength of armament. And, and it's just, it's overwhelmingly in favor of NATO. So he made the military case that if Ukraine was fell to Russia, it is very, very unlikely that it would go beyond that. Number two, um, <clears throat> In this particular case, the um, and we're seeing that now. We're, we're recording this on Friday, right? And I want to say that because we would note that the Russian military is now in the process of surrounding Kiev, the, the main city. And his second scenario was that Kiev falls to the Russians. Um, and then the real negotiations, in his opinion, would start to take place at that point. And what those negotiations would likely lead to is Crimea and the two other eastern um, uh, areas that are Russian-influenced right now in Ukraine effectively become Russian. Now, that effectively mean could a full annex of that area, yeah. okay, or it, it's just it's Russian-controlled. Now, there was some sort of talk as well as, as the Ukraine government not going into NATO as well. Yeah, yeah. He, he felt, and we've seen that development, that, that um, Ukraine stays outside of NATO and creates some neutrality. 
But that was option two. He felt that was the most likely outcome from a military perspective. Yeah. Number three uh, was that uh, effectively uh, it, it, it becomes a standstill. So Russia will retreat. Uh, the Crimea remains as is. The eastern part of the Ukraine remains Russian-influenced, but it's not necessarily a takeover. It is, it is you know, Russia is not one in that particular case. And the fourth, uh, the fourth case, he said, was that there is a regime change, meaning that uh, um, Putin... Uh, through his, uh, you know, through internal, it's the March of Ives, uh, um, uh, he gets taken out, effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And he said that is highly unlikely, yeah. but not an Im impossible, not impossible scenario. Okay? Uh -huh. Those are the four scenarios. So with those four scenarios, the high likelihood that uh, Russia will take over Kiev, they will have Ukraine uh, admit that two of the regions are independent mm -hmm. from Ukraine, um, there is conversation that they will also have to agree that they're not going to join NATO as well. And if that's the higher likelihood outcome, um, that can cause a lot of volatility and uncertainty yep. in the market. Absolutely. And so the purpose of the outlining of these four scenarios is that they're all on the table. They all have difference of, of probability of what could be the outcome. The highest probability of, of, of those four scenarios is what is talking about taking over Kiev. And, and now it comes down to how do you handle this in your portfolio? Right. So there's going to be more volatility, more uncertainty. Expect that. But we do know that over every major conflict in history, that 9 to 12 months after a, a major component like this that we're describing, markets are higher. Yep. Higher than where they are today. Right. So think of that from a, a longer-term perspective. Short-term, expect volatility. Longer-term, expect results. Right. Right. And now comes positioning. How do you adjust your portfolio to find the areas of opportunity, knowing the nine month, 12 month game point from when, let's call Kiev being taken over. Right. Okay. So that's what's going to be happening in the portfolio. That's what we're working on. We're making a lot of moves. We're looking at a lot of information on how to, how to get that opportunity on the recovery. Right. And we've seen this time and time again. Those who were investing during any conflict, you can go from 9-11, you can go to the Gulf Wars, you can go Afghanistan, whatever it may be, just look nine, 12 months after right. what happens. Right. right. So there's an opportunity and there's a lot of investments out there or a lot of companies that have been decimated. It's shopping time. It's shopping time. And so now we go out and we start looking for the opportunities. Yeah, that's right. Um, you, you've got to stay nimble. You've got to stay dynamic. It's a dynamic situation. This thing is evolving constantly, right? And so when we're looking for those opportunities and we're looking on how to manage through this, it's not the day-to-day -day volatility that we're looking at. It, it's where this is going to end up. Where the, Cut through the noise, find the real news, look at what this looks like, um, you know, short-term, a month out, Six months, a year, 12, 24 months, those kinds of things. So if you need money in the next 9, 12, 24 months, it should not be in this because of a lot of volatility. Correct. If you've got money that you don't need for the next 24 months or beyond, yep. understand that there's an opportunity to make some money on this. The, the next two years, keep that capital aside. Right. Don't invest in high volatility. Keep it in low volatility or no volatility and protect yourself. That's why we have an income bucket. That's why we have a growth bucket. That's the approach. And that's what we would recommend for all of our, our clients as well. Um, Faisal, there's lots going on um, in the world, obviously, and uh, the military conflict, we've got inflation. What is going to be the outcome, right? What, what do we think when we put all this into the, into the mixer, 
from an economics perspective, what is likely to flow out of it? There's a lot of economists that are giving their opinions on what could transpire from world recession yep. to just a European recession to stagflation uh, to no issues in North America, but the rest of the world yep. uh, would have a problem. A whole bunch of different um, viewpoints. And so kind of let's narrow it down to what is the most likely outcome from an economic perspective, and right. that will also dictate how, how the world will react from, a, from an investment perspective as well. So we definitely need to have that, that, that viewpoint to see what's the most likely outcome economically speaking. Yeah, and nobody better to help us understand who that is than our top guy, Avery Schenfeld, CIBC's chief economist. Avery, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. We've got a lot. Uh, you heard our setup there. There's a lot to, to cover, but... Uh, maybe we just throw it to you right off the bat because we've got this wicked witch's brew sort of happening right now. And from an economics perspective, when, when you look at, uh, at this scenario, maybe you can define for us, again, from an economics perspective, what you think the likely outcome is, and then we can get into some of the specifics of, of what that means from an investment perspective. Well, I'm not obviously a military expert or a military historian. I'm not wearing a, a general's cap and a bunch of ribbons on my chest. Uh, but I think that there's two things that we can safely conclude at this point in terms of uh, the war's outcome. Uh, and and they, they are really what's going to be central for the economic impact. One is that Ukraine's economy is severely damaged and there's no quick prospect for repairing what's going to be done to that economy, uh, at least not in the next year or two. It'd be a long way back. And then the second is that, in our view, Russia has now gone so far in this conflict that there's really no prospect that uh, the free world is going to kiss and make up with Vladimir Putin. So as long as Putin is still in power, as long as there has not been regime change in Russia, Russia is a pariah state, uh, which means that uh, economic and uh, political relations between Russia and the NATO countries and the, the rest of the G10 and so on, uh, those are permanently damaged. And, and it's really the legacy of that that we're going to be dealing with, um, not just the short-term recession in Russia and the collapse of the Ukraine economy, but that longer-term Cold War that I think is inevitable at this point. So with a longer term Cold War, paint us the picture of what you see economically. We can definitely stay about the, the world in, as a whole, but then let's narrow it down all the way to our home country here in Canada, what the impacts are. From your uh, analysis, if we have this Cold War, what do you see the economic impacts happening? So I think there, there's two sets of impacts. One is sort of during this hot war period um, and then the Cold War that follows. In, in, the, in this current environment, obviously, uh, the major story is that, first of all, in 2% of the world's GDP, or roughly speaking, is made up by Ukraine and Russia, um, and those economies have fallen into deep recessions. So uh, we're going to lose a few percentage points off world economic growth just from the havoc in those two economies alone. Um, that said, you know you can see they're not that big as a share of world GDP. Russia's economy is about the size of the Texas economy. So the fact that Russia falls into recession doesn't in itself generate a huge loss in global economic activity. Uh, the main consequences for the rest of the world lie in what that's done to commodity prices. Um, and I think there's some of this that might not last beyond the war. Uh, but some that's there for the here and now, which is, you know, you've seen energy prices up materially. 
That's not because Russian oil and natural gas aren't flowing. They're still flowing. But the world is scrambling to buy supplies elsewhere in the fear uh, that Russian oil won't flow, which is why prices look so elevated. And that elevation in oil prices as a consequence for the rest of the world's economy certainly hurts consumer spending power in many parts of the world. And of course, elevates inflation at a time when central banks were already worried that inflation was hot. And this is just adding to that worry. And then beyond energy, of course, Russia and Ukraine collectively are major exporters of grains. Uh, in Russia's case, uh, platinum, palladium, aluminum. <laughs> Uh, in in the, that block of countries, uh, you know, Belarus included, uh, you've got uh, fertilizers, for example, potash. So we have a number of other commodities whose prices are elevated. Um, that sometimes sounds like good news for Canada, but I would argue it's sort of a mixed blessing for Canada. But it's definitely negative news for other countries that are resource importers, including, of course, our most important trading partner and where a lot of us have investments, which is in the U.S. economy. So, you know, the reality was we were on the verge of raising our forecast for U.S. growth this year because the economy did get off to a better start uh, in the first quarter of the year. And instead, we've marginally lowered economic growth. Uh, under the assumption that the, the middle two quarters of the year will see a reduction in household spending power, at least as long as these gasoline prices persist. It's going to take the wind out of the sails of other parts of consumer spending. It's a really simple story. If you spend more filling up your gas tank, you have less money to spend on everything else. But it's not a recession story for the U.S. because the other story that's happening and still unfolding is the recovery from a COVID crisis People are going right. back to buying more services, traveling, and so on. We don't think that fundamental story has changed. So, you know, growth of around 3.5% in the U.S. and Canada this year. We've taken, as I said, a little bit of a shine off those U.S. numbers. But it's, it's not a recession story, although it is an inflation story for the time being. And then we can talk about the longer-term implications of that Cold War, I think, separately. Yeah. So when you look at what's happening with, uh, with your analysis, you're saying no recession at this point in time. We're seeing a slowdown than what we expected because it's uh, of what's going on with the war. But that's still not going to put us in a recession spot. So what happens with the two areas? One, do we still think commodity prices are set to go higher because of this conflict? And number two, if we're not going to be growing as much, do you think central bankers will no longer have to raise interest rates as many times as, as they've been uh, been promoted to do so, maybe four times in Canada, five, six, seven times in the United States. Uh, what are your thoughts on those two areas? So certainly trying to predict where these commodity prices will go even next week uh, is a game I'd rather not get into because you can see just day to day we've had massive swings. And that's because, as I said, it's not that Russian oil and gas have been cut off. It's the market's varying fears from day to day about whether it will or won't be cut off. You know, the U.S. and Canada aren't going to buy Russian oil, but we never bought very much of it. And as long as they're able to sell it to somebody, whether it's China or whatever, um, that oil still represents part of global supply. So this is a sentiment-driven rally in some of these commodities uh, based on guesses on the future world of Russian exports and very tough to predict day to day. Uh, but what I don't think it really does is materially change the interest rate outlook. 
you know, the market initially flirted with the idea that the slowing in global growth meant that the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada would have fewer interest rate hikes to do. And that sentiment has turned right around again. And I think that's right. I think that the hit to our growth is not big enough to materially alter uh, the need for those higher interest rates. But at the same time, I don't think that even though it's going to push those inflation headlines even more dramatically than we've already seen, I don't think that that really affects how many rate hikes we're going to see over the next, say, two years. And the reason for that is that ultimately the number of rate hikes you need is what does it take to slow economic growth so that we're not putting further pressure on inflation by further lowering the unemployment rate, further tightening uh, the domestic economy. So the central banks will live with elevated inflation during this war period. They're not going to try to crush Canada or the U.S. economies to offset a huge spike in gasoline prices by causing prices in the rest of the economy to plummet. That would be that would be foolish for what likely is, uh, to, at least to some extent, a temporary bump in inflation. And, and we still see that that at the end of the day, we've got to get short-term interest rates in the U.S. and Canada up into the sort of two and a quarter, two and a half percent range. Now, there could be some impacts on the pace that th that happens, but ultimately that's the destination that we need to get to, to slow economic growth. Um, and it really isn't that impacted by this particular war. We have about a minute left to go, Avery. When you look at the, the places around the world, where are you most optimistic for economic growth and where are you the most pessimistic? besides Russia, Ukraine, of course. So Europe is the one region that could be more materially affected. That's true at the corporate level. So if you're thinking stocks, remember that, you know, European banks, for example, probably to a greater extent than American banks, and certainly more than any Canadian bank, will have credit out to Russian creditors. They may not get their money back. German companies may, uh, you know, in addition to global oil companies that were operating in, uh, in Russia and McDonald's, uh, which seems to have declared Russia a no-fry zone now. Um, there are a number of other countries that will be companies, probably more European companies and German companies than North American that will have to walk away from assets in Russia and may find those assets seized by the Russians, you know, not available to come back to anytime soon. So there are some costs to the corporate world in Europe, but also Europe is at this point probably the one most affected by uh, the consumer sentiment risks because you're living on the border of a war zone. You're worried about natural <laughs> gas supply being cut off. Um, you're paying a lot more for electric power because of that. Uh, all of that, a bigger dent to Europe. Again, probably not a recession story for Western Europe, but a story that might be a little bit more of a protracted path back to full employment than they were looking at before the war. Avery, we want to thank you. We've, we've run out of time. I think you've done um, an amazing justice to a complicated topic in the time we've had you. We appreciate your time. 
David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada.